2000s when you can start doing all kinds of 3D stuff and doing, you know, really playing with graphics and concepts. Like the 90s, that sweet spot where you got some old school and then you got some, like some signs of what's to come. Like, you know, you start off the early 90s, like Super Nintendo versus like, you know, Dreamcast slash PlayStation 2 by the end of it. Like that's a huge jump. And I feel like, you know, as much as I enjoy stuff nowadays, you don't see that kind of jump. Like, you know, it never feels like, oh, wow, this is a completely new era. Whereas, you know, back in the 90s, you felt that in the span of a few years. And absolutely, yeah, game uh, the game industry was totally different place, you know. You know, there's like, of course, no DLC. You got to have the game all done right. before you ship it out. You know, it's so right. much more physical. Um, right. You know, all these different factors that went into it. So, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that everybody loves that era so much is like, obviously, there's some nostalgia aspect. But plus, there's the innovative aspect that, you know, they had to be innovative because that was what they had at the time versus like now where you've got like a gazillion tools to work with. Right. And you can kind of get bogged down with all those tools. And, you know, I'm glad you kind of led us in this direction because I actually wanted to just have a conversation with you about, you know, arcadism, you know, and, and this crossover culture that kind of exists in the space of like arcade culture and like how games like NBA Jam kind of spearheaded, you know, and, and you know, crossover culture or crossover motifs or what, yeah. we, what me and Kai like to call arcadism. I don't know if you've seen our work on it online or whatever. We're always posting about it, but basically like. Yeah, that notion that DJ Jazzy Jeff will be in an NBA Jam or Bill Clinton will be in NBA Jam or the MK characters will be in NBA Jam. Like, it doesn't make sense from a logical standpoint, but because of the experimental nature of the era, it was anything goes. Um, and I just kind of wanted to, to kind of, you know, pick your brain about uh, how you feel about crossover culture as it relates to pop culture and more specifically as it relates to games because you know we follow your twitter and we see you you know you don't only post nba jam i mean you post way more stuff than nba jam you know honestly it's like so you're hip to that nature of something has you know heightened value in the cult pop culture zeitgeist if it's a crossover between two fictional universes how do you feel about that phenomena in pop and specifically in nba jam that sort of like you know, crossover between worlds and how that makes the value of that commodity increase. Absolutely. You know, there's definitely something to be said for that. Well, the thing is also like NBA Jam in particular is such a really good example of that because it's a basketball game, but it's also such like an arcade game at the same time. Like it's, you know, it's like it's two at once where, you know, you find people who are hardcore basketball fans will enjoy it for different reasons versus people that are just casual video game fans. Or they like the idea of how NBA Jam plays, which is why they'll play it. Um, you know, that was something I found while working on the book, which was uh, John Romero, the operator of Doom and Quake and Overhead Software. He wasn't a basketball fan at all, but he loved NBA Jam because of how it played. And going back from there, NBA Jam was designed with like this kind of fighting game mentality in mind of like, you know, that was, it was created in the early 90s back when fighting games were just starting to take off. And uh, Mark Turmel and his team at Midway were trying to think of like, how can we tap into this fighting game market. So NBA Jam itself is a crossover, a bunch of different concepts. You know, you've got all that that comes in with the video game aspect and that comes in with the pop culture aspect. And then when you get into like things like the secret characters and then it just totally explodes where you've got people, you know, getting interested in NBA Jam because, you know, it's, or being familiar with it because it's the game that's got Bill Clinton or the game that's got Will Smith or something like that. Um, you know, even though I don't think anybody ever signed off on their licenses being in there, that was definitely like a, you know, it's such a big part of it uh, for people. So yeah, that crossover culture was, was very cool. And it's something that's like, you know, it's fundamental to NBA jam. Absolutely. 
And it, it also like was the groundwork for more street NBA street titles. Cause that wasn't an NBA street game per se, but it, it, there would no, there would not be an NBA street without NBA jam. You know what I mean? So it kind of like the over the top arcade animated play style, you know, really gave birth to not just NBA street, but NFL street and, and the FIFA soccer street games. Like it's so insane. Like, which, which I guess EA worked on all those, right? So that yeah, kind of yeah, makes sense. absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, when yeah. you think about it, though, there was a whole bunch of NBA Jam clones in the '90s too, like all kinds of knockoffs out there. Um, I re- remember there was like a Space Jam game that Acclaim put out that looked very NBA Jam like. There was like a like a period like right from like '94 to like '97 or so where it was like if you were going to make a basketball game and you didn't know what concept to use, just use the NBA Jam model because it's simple and it's fun. And I mean, you can't really screw it up, but yeah, no, absolutely. Like that was, that was so influential in so many ways in terms of like how people were copying that model. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's just a special game. There's so much culture associated with it and, and so many cool stories. So um, yeah, actually, you know what, backtracking a little bit, I've heard you talk about arcadism before I've seen you say this, but what is it? What is arcadism? Like, what is that? It's, what is your definition of it specifically? Yeah, so it's it's evolving, but the short version of it is it's a, it's a media theory is what it is basically and it's like the media theory is basically like how crossovers are like the basis of creation. So that's one aspect of it and I I'm still writing more about it, you know, I'm still kind of developing it because there's many different aspects of it like a more direct way to approach archaism is as an arcade culture as just like the study of arcade culture, like the study of like um, you know, gaming history in a way that isn't contextualized, like as um, nerd culture per se, yeah. but more as like hip hop street culture or like on the ground, direct to consumer underground culture, right? Because there's no, there's no word for that, right? There's no word for like what Midway was doing in the nineties. Like there's no, it's just like, Oh, they made a game and and really things awesome things happen and some not some not so awesome things happen and then it gets contextualized in the like big corporate gaming press machine as like gamer culture and I, I don't think that's an appropriate word to like describe what the happening was with these raw ideas so like there's different aspects of it one is the culture yeah. one's the study of it and then the other aspect of it is like you know it can be more it can be attached more to pop culture as well and so what the 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 idea of it or kind of the history behind it is because like I was researching arcades like kind of the history of arcades and the history of arcades is like kind of convoluted in itself it's kind of cloudy like where was the first arcade or, or where was the first video arcade like those questions from what I've seen have not been able to be like clearly answered but we do know that the word arcade comes to comes from like like the Paris arcades and arcades come from architecture. So, you know, arcades in themselves have a deep relationship to culture, to architecture, to lifestyle, to study, to design that aren't directly related to like just consuming games as a consumer. And I think gamer helps like express the consumer, but it doesn't necessarily express everything else that we love about gaming culture. No, definitely. I can see what you mean. Yeah. And I was thinking as you were talking about that, about it being on the ground. I mean, arcades are different from other mediums in which they were like, you know, you put the game out there and you're totally at the mercy of the public that are just like seeing the game as they're seeing it. And there's, you know, there's like, you don't really have that same kind of marketing campaign that goes with the home game. 
Like with right. home games, you'd have print ads and you'd have all these home commercials. And you'd be able to do this and that and hype it up. Whereas with pretty much with arcade games, like you, you come up with a game, it's out there. And then when it's, you know, when it's on location, it depends on whether people are going to be into it or not, whether it's going to succeed or not, because you don't have that kind of marketing push. So it's very much word of mouth. So, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I kind of see what you mean. Yeah. And and like even just some of the stuff that you've talked about, like, you know, going through that history of interviewing all these people and like getting their input on it, like what NBA Jam meant from a cultural perspective, like that is a such a deep, I think, a deep social, socio, you know, sociological study. You know, that's a that's a cultural relic, you know, the book and the yeah. work that you were doing in relationship to the relationship to the book. So, you know, we're always trying to elevate you know, the conversation with, you know, our videos and with our, you know, newsletter and with our podcast that me and Kyle are working on, like, we're trying to find ways to explore what games mean to people beyond just playing them right now. You know what I mean? And, and you, you know about this, like you're, you're hip to what's going on in the industry about like how the most popular Tekken game for most people will always be Tekken 3. You know what I mean? Like what it meant to people during that time period. Tekken 3 is the one, like, even though Tekken 7 is great, like there's still cultural significance to Tekken three and what it meant to people and how it influenced culture and how it influenced music and what it borrowed from music. Like that whole like area of study is just like, it's lacking, it's lacking like development and it's lacking a, a context, but like you're doing a lot of work in that area. Like you decided to pursue the NBA jam book. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Like at what moment were you like, I know that you, you wanted to pitch the idea, but when were you like a big fan of NBA Jam enough that you would want to like tell that story? Was it like even when you were, I guess, really young playing it or just tell us a little bit of the story about approaching that project? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So just a little bit about my video game history. Uh, so I start off with a Nintendo that my dad got from uh, an Albertsons grocery store way back in the day, which goes to show like how much life has changed where people are buying video game consoles at grocery stores. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it went from that to um you know i had my nintendo as a kid and i enjoy video games um but you know I, I don't think i ever like you know when you're when you're a kid it's good when you're a really little kid it's gonna be different when you're a little bit older um but yeah i i went from that to a uh second mega drive uh because i grew up up uh, i grew up over in karachi pakistan and um you know over there like and we still have access to some of the same kinds of games but you know you get a different version of consoles some stuff you would get some stuff you wouldn't um, but yeah, it was, uh, like I went, you know, from Nintendo to the Mega Drive and the Mega Drive was where I really started getting into video games. And like, you know, as I was growing up, starting to really pay attention to them. Um, so I was a big Midway fan, even as a little kid, like I could tell, like, you know, Mortal Kombat, something cool. I even thought the Midway logo looked cool. Um, and then there was a time when I was like maybe 10 or so when my uncle, uh, you know, we'd do from, for my birthdays, he'd get like a whole bunch of, uh, comics, like a stack of comics. Now, these weren't necessarily new comics, but these were comics that came from maybe overseas someplace. But like you could get like a big stack of them for a really low price. You don't know what you'd get in them. It'd be all kinds of stuff. So it was for I think it was for a birthday or something like that, that my uncle gave me a big stack of comics. And um, I must have been like 10 at this point. And on the back of them was the was an ad for this really cool looking game. And it was like there's like a basketball on fire and then a bunch of portraits of people. Uh, underneath it and I like I didn't know who these people were but it looked kind of cool the colors really popped and it was for NBA Jam Tournament Edition and uh, you know even at that point though I, I liked video games I knew video games I didn't really care uh, for sports games all that much 
And I knew about basketball, but I had no familiarity with the NBA. Um, so over in Pakistan, like, you know, you'll have people playing basketball for fun. And it's definitely a thing over there in terms of like, you know, if you want to play a pickup game, something like that, you could probably find somebody. But there's nothing like the NBA over there. And there certainly wasn't in the 90s. Like there was nothing broadcasting games. Like you'd be able to, you know, somebody might know Michael Jordan because he's this huge icon. But, you know, none of this other stuff is going to make any kind of impact on people. So I didn't really care about the NBA, but this ad looks so cool. And I was really into my Mega Drive at the time, the Genesis. So I was like, let me see if I can track down the game. Um, so I managed to track down a copy of NBA Jam Tournament Edition. Um, and I just loved it. Like, it was just so cool. Like, you know, the way that these players are just jumping across the court. And, you know, like, it's so satisfying when you nail those shots. Like, the commentary is just so over the top. It's so video game. Like, even, you know, even for a sports game, you can tell, like, this is totally a video game version of it. I mean, I loved it. And I grew up playing that. And then, um, you know, what's funny is I loved NBA Jam so much, it got me into the NBA itself. So I went from recognizing these players as just characters in NBA Jam to following the NBA from a distance in the 90s, which was really tough because, like, my mom was over in the States. I was over in Pakistan, and my mom would send over, like, trading cards, like Beckett Basketball Magazine, and a few other things. Like, so I'd have, like, bits and pieces of NBA culture at the time. Um, but I wouldn't really be completely tuned in. Like I could never watch full games. I might see like some highlights at the end of a CNN broadcast or something like that, where they might show something. But I mean, I still love the idea of the NBA and of basketball and it all came back to uh, NBA Jam. But yeah, I was uh, playing video games for many years. And then I was, uh, you know, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. So I started on that path right before I graduated college, um, started writing for, lots of um, like music zines and things like that, doing interviews with bands and whatnot. And then one thing led to another, um, wrote for a bunch of different places, Rolling Stone, Wired, the AV Club, uh, American Airlines In-Flight Magazine, which was pretty weird, um, Complex, all kinds of cool different places. And then, you know, as time went on, um, you know, I knew I really wanted to do a book and do something more substantial. And at that point, I wasn't writing about video games at all. I was writing about music. Um, so I pitched a couple of music books. Uh, and they both got rejected, which is a bummer, but it happens. And then in 2014, I found this publisher, Boss Five Books, uh, out of Los Angeles. And I might have actually heard of them. Actually, you know what? No, I think I, yeah, I found them in 2014, I think. Um, and they're still really young, but it was a really cool concept. Like the idea of one book that's dedicated to one video game. So like one author will do one game, a different author will do a different game. So there's like, you know, Galaga, Super Mario 2, Super Mario 3, et cetera, Mega Man. Um, all written by different authors. And I was like, I really want to pitch something to them because I, you know, writing is my is my path over here. And with music writing, maybe it's not working out the same way I want it to. And um, yeah, so I, I pitched this this big pitch to them. Or as I was coming up with a big pitch, I was like, what game can I write about? Like, what's something that like left an impact on me that some that somebody might want to hear about? And I wrecked my brain. And I was like, oh, it's got to be NBA Jam. I mean, it was so big that like I got into it as a kid from a distance. And I knew that there was going to be so many other people that loved NBA Jam just because, you know, instead of because they were basketball fans, because the, because the game was so good. Um, so, yeah, I started working on the book back in 2015 with this idea. And then it grew from one thing to another. Like it went from I just looking at NBA Jam to looking at Midway, which I had familiarity with from when I was a kid. And then to looking at the arcade scene overall and the kind of rise and fall of what happened in the 90s. So there's a lot of things that wrapped up into that. Um, but, yeah, it all came back down to you know, finding that one ad on a comic book in the 90s. And I still have the comic book. It was just such a 
the ad was so cool that, you know, that marketing that claimed it was so good that it really worked. I mean, it worked to the point that I wrote a book about the game all those years later. Um, but yeah, it was really cool. I knew NBA Jam was, was going to be very cool when I first saw it. Um, but yeah, you know, it took a long time to get to the point of writing about it or researching it. But I was really glad I did. I was really glad I did get to that point because there's so much that goes into that. Yeah, the the uh, the the design material and the promotional material for that game are, is just really really incredible. I mean, still to this day, yeah, um, it still really stands out, and you can show it to someone, they immediately notice it um, and, and and recognize it. It's really really incredible. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about what you talked about a little bit earlier. Thank you for detailing sort of those early arcade beginnings and those early NBA Jam beginnings. Maybe you can talk to us a little bit about what you remember Pakistan's scene being like for gaming or what there what you know, what what arcade scene was there in Pakistan? What was that like? Uh, Absolutely. Any, any information about that would be awesome yeah. because, you know, we grew up in the States and of we course, yeah. know, Pakistan existed in elementary school. You know what I'm saying? So, right. No, I completely get it. No, it's one of those things where it's like, I would love to know about like what's arcade gaming scene like and like, you know, parts of Europe that I would have never heard of. Like, I have no 100%. idea what what the, you know, what was the Spanish arcade gaming scene like, or what was the gaming scene like over in, I don't know, in, you know, certain parts of Asia. I, I don't know, like, what was actually like in myself, like, you know, what was it like in Indonesia, let's say. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, being an arcade fan in Pakistan was tough because I, you know, I had all these, all this access to uh, American pop culture via my mom. Um, so I'm, I'm half and half. I'm half, uh, half American, half white. And I'm half Pakistani. So I'm both uh, both things at once. So my mom would really keep me clued in on American culture, even as I was over there. So I was getting magazines all the time. And I was seeing previews of all these amazing games and like all these arcade games that I know I would never be able to play because they would never come over there. But I was still like, you know, as a fan, really tuned into that. Uh, but in terms of what you could find over there. Yeah. You know, of course, it's a different uh, you know, it was a different time than it is nowadays where there's so few arcades to be found. But, you know, even back then, there was a, b- a bunch of arcades over there. Uh, there was a big one called Aladdin's, um, which is different from the Aladdin's Castle in the States. Um, just coincidentally, I guess Aladdin's is like a thing that, you know, you just call arcades Aladdin's. Um, but, yeah, there was like that had a few different, a couple different chains. Um, and then you find like arcade games in kind of random places, mostly in restaurants. So, um, you know, there's, for example, there's a, a Pizza Hut that I used to frequent um, on the other side of town that had a Simpsons arcade game, which was the first time I'd ever seen the Simpsons arcade game. And, you know, there was another Pizza Hut that had Mortal Kombat 1 in there, which was super cool. Um, was that the first time that you saw the Simpsons also or, or you had known about the Simpsons before the game? I knew about the Simpsons before the game because I had a buddy that had some Simpsons stickers as a kid. And it was like, hey, check out these Simpsons stickers. I was like, that's pretty cool. So, yeah, no, no. And we had we would have uh, cable television that would like get us access to some shows. Like, it's really weird because, you know, it's all funneled through depending on where it comes through either the UK or through the UAE, where we get access to international uh, programming for. But, yeah, no, we had the Simpsons over there and there are definitely some diehard Simpsons fans amongst my friends. but yeah, like there, the piece, like there was this one piece of head that had uh, Mortal Kombat one, and then one of the Street Fighters. Like I'm not sure if it was like original Super Street, or it was original Street Fighter two, or one of the other versions. But we definitely had a Street Fighter two. Um, and then, and you know, over at Aladdin's, you'd find all kinds of different stuff. Like you'd find like a virtual racing, you'd find uh, an Arm Champs, or rather Arm Champs two. 
um, and a whole bunch of different games that, you know, a lot of them are just escaping from my memory. But I loved arcade games so much. It's so funny. I wish I still had this book, but I would keep track of any time I could play a game over in Pakistan because it was so hard. It was so rare finding one of these that I would like have a notebook where I listed like, you know, did I play this game or not? It was like super nerdy, but I love doing it. And I used to keep track as a kid. Um, but what's funny enough is that, of course, there was no basketball culture. So there was no NBA Jam. So I never got to play NBA Jam in the arcade as a kid. Um, I got to play it years later, probably as a late teenager or as an early adult, um, but never got to play it in the arcades. And, you know, we would get certain things like we get like, oh, wow, you know, we got, you know, Alien 3, the gun, but we wouldn't get Alien versus Predator. Or, you know, there was a KFC in particular that had the best arcade you've ever seen. Like it's the coolest arcade. It was like the, on the bottom floor was a KFC and the top floor was an arcade. And they had a wave runner, like this huge wave runner by Sega that was just amazing. Right. And they had, they had Top Skater, which just blew my mind. It was like, Top Skater, what? Oh, my God, I could play Top Skater over here. So whenever I got to go to this KFC, it was a huge treat. Um, so, yeah, you'd find different places that have some arcade games. But the problem was that we wouldn't be getting stuff as it was coming to the States. Or we'd only get some iterations. Like, you know, we, for example, we had Mortal Kombat 1, but I never saw Mortal Kombat 2 and I never saw Mortal Kombat 3 much less a 4 or anything like that mm. and the same thing goes for like you know you never really see sports games you see some racing games but you'd never see like let's say like you know Scud Race or like the you know the latest Sega game like you'd never get that um so yeah you like get some get bits and pieces of things but there's like definitely like a sense to like thrill to that like there's a hunt aspect to it right. like, maybe you know if I go out to this like this other pizza hut that I've been to like maybe they've got like some arcade game i haven't seen before um right now, thankfully though the things are way better on the console side so you have access to most uh console games like in terms of like carts like you know i was a Sega genesis kid or a mega drive kid so you know i had access to pretty much all the big titles over there there's certain things that i didn't see until years later i didn't really like notice but i'm sure it was you know those were available back then um and then when it came to cds that was when like i really hit the jackpot by growing up over there because unfortunately, there you know there's no licensed products of any kind in Pakistan when it comes to uh, to CDs. Like you know, you'd have the licensed cartridges because you can't fake cartridges the same way, so they were really expensive. But uh, with CDs, of course, you can burn them left and right. So you know, I grew up with a PlayStation, and I would go over to my video game store and I get like literally 15, 20 games at a time. Instead of renting them, I would be buying them because it'd be equivalent to like maybe two dollars a pop. And it was amazing. Like if I wanted to try a game, I just buy it. And I still have like tons and tons of these pirated games and, and uh, <laughs> bookcases over here and CD cases. Yeah. I was like, you know, like, like some random, like Japanese RPG. I wasn't really an RPG kid, but I was like, yeah, I'll try it. And, you know, I'd have like, I'd have something on there. I'd just try once and then that would be it. But, um, you know, that's the, I guess the upside of like growing up in a place where you can't even find the legitimate one if you want it. Um, so, yeah. So like in terms of PlayStation games, we've got all kinds of stuff. You know, I had like a, a build of Tony Hawk. I would, I really need to get a uh, PAL PlayStation so I can unearth this, but I got a build of Tony Hawk before it actually came out of the States. Like this weird wow. beta version was somehow released and like went through some sort of pirated network, this, that, and then it ended up in this one PlayStation to go to, to buy games in, in Pakistan. Um, but yeah, like, you know, we, we had like, I got like a copy of Thrill Kill, which was never released in the States, but like there's like the beta leaked over there. And I got like Pepsi wow. Man, which was a huge, you know, it's a big cult classic now. I grew up with Pepsi Man because, you know, the, the guy at the video game store had it, all kinds of random stuff. 
Um, and then, yeah, and then I had the Dreamcast too, which had a bunch of pirated stuff as well. So you could find Dreamcast games as well when that time came. Um, so yeah, so I moved in 2001. And so that kind of cut off my, of course, the end of my uh, time with the pirated games over there. But when I would go back in the future, they definitely still had the PlayStation 2 games and probably PS3 games and so forth. Um, but yeah, there was all kinds of cool stuff over there. It was harder to find stuff though. And so there's definitely like an aspect of like, if you found like a really cool game or hard to find game, like there was like a real thrill because there's no, you know, there's no Amazon. There's nothing like you can be like, oh, okay, I'm just going to get right. it. Like you had it been in order to find it, find it. It was just really something special. Yeah. And that was like, that was like around the whole world. Like everybody went through that pre the internet. It was like, yeah. you either found the actual product or you didn't. And that's a really interesting uh you know, part of the consumer experience that is for the most part lacking, you know, that, that the hunt for something and, you know, the conversation around it from the people that you met and, and not just looking online to see what people commented about is really interesting. Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah. I was going to say, absolutely. Yeah. And I was thinking like, you know, the most we had in terms of reviews was something in game pro or like EGM or something like that. And even then right. it wasn't really all that much. And like, you know, we had internet, like, uh, I was like, I remember, like, having internet in, like, 97, that was when my family got the internet over there, which was really cool, and we were, you know, still very, like, we were, like, right on the cusp of that, but even then, the stuff you could get online, like, the information you could get was so limited, so it was really a different experience growing up with that, and, like, in terms of the access of information you had. Was there um, an aspect about maybe the eighties or nineties that, that you really love the most or, or that you really appreciate the most, whether or not it was the process of playing or finding the game or like a big thing of, of nostalgia is uh, like um, for a lot of people online, there's like blockbuster and like Hollywood videos mm -hmm. and stuff like that in the States because people got to go and hang out, you know, they got to rent movies and they got to talk to other people who watched those movies. And it was, a whole experience of like having a DVD or a VHS for seven days and having the opportunity to take it back. And I didn't, I wasn't a big movie person during that time period, but I had a bunch of PS one games from like the blockbuster and stuff like that back in the day. And it was so cool to just try games out um, on my, on my PlayStation. I'm curious to like, what's your favorite aspect of, 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 of the, you know, decade old, or maybe just like what's some, uh, a piece of nostalgia that really stands out to you, you know? That's a, that's a great question. Um, there's so much stuff. I mean, when I think about it, like the, well, the first thing that comes to mind is magazines. Like I'm still a big yeah. magazine collector. I still have like shelves of these old magazines, the ones from back in the day. And then someone, some that I bought on eBay later on or picked up elsewhere. But like, you know, when you look at stuff in print, it's totally different than looking at it online. Where online, you've got like a comment section where everybody's chiming in. And with social media, there's immediate reactions to things they, as they happen. But in the days of just, you know, having access to video game news through print magazines means that like whatever game pro is going to cover, whatever game informer is going to cover, or whatever tips and tricks is going to cover. That's what you get access to. And there's something really cool about that, about opening up a magazine each month and, you know, seeing those games for the first time and not having that outside voice of, oh, wow, this sucks or, oh, wow, this looks so good. Usually, right. you know what I mean? Like you go online, people have a hot take or like, oh, this looks like trash or this is great or whatever like just the hype or the anti-hype just kicks in immediately. So all you have is like a little bit of a description to go on and a couple of screenshots in a corner of a magazine for some of these smaller games. So that's something I really miss is like how kind of quiet it was and how there was less negativity 
honestly, because like there's less reason to be negative. There's less voices out there. So you've got, um, you know, it's, it's just so much more positive and upbeat. Um, but yeah, there, I have, you know, I have super duper nostalgia for tons of stuff in the nineties. I mean, um, you know, by the late nineties, I was visiting my mom in the States again. And, um, you know, that's where I got my blockbuster nostalgia from. So I definitely have some blockbuster nostalgia too, but yeah, as far as games go, you know, absolutely. You know, the physical aspect of games, you know, being able to, to go someplace and pick up a, you know, you know, pick up a copy of something or, you know, trying to hunt something down. Um, you know, that's something that was really special to me. And in terms of how games played, uh, going back to something that I was mentioning earlier, is that what I really love about like games from that era, which I think is part nostalgia, but also part reality, is that like they didn't have access to all kinds of tools like they had what they had. And, you know, they were kind of that middle period of like, you know, okay, we're post 80s, you know, Mario, Nintendo, Sega, they've got this whole thing going, but we don't know which direction it's going to go in. We don't know what the future looks like. You know, the future is so bright, things could be changing all the time. You know, you had that by the beginning, and then by the end of the decade, you had the Dreamcast and Sega getting close to falling off, unfortunately, and, you know, Sony being a big player in the mix. And there's something really exciting about that. Like that was a big shift in those 10 years of all the stuff that had happened and those consoles that came and went, um, you know, you like the Jaguar, the 3DO, you had the virtual boy, you had this, you had that, all kinds of different stuff. Um, whereas, you know, I feel like nowadays, like you got 10, 10 years of video games, like not that much has really changed, you know, like it doesn't really look, feel like, oh, wow, this is 10 years ago. That's crazy. Like you have to go right. back 20 years ago to feel like there's a big difference. And even right. then, right. like, the, you know, even some PS2 games, I feel like they're not that, that, that bad. Um, you know, it's like you can, you can, you can work with, with them nowadays, of course. Um, but yeah, there's something really exciting about that. And plus the Wild West aspect, which was like, you don't know what you're going to get in some games. You don't know how they're going to do it. You know, they're still trying to figure out how to adapt things. Like, you know, wrestling games are still so young. Um, you know, there's only like one UFC game ever made in the 90s because it was like, what is MMA? That's a brand new thing. In terms of basketball games, like they hadn't really perfected the simulation because they didn't have the technology to do that. Like they didn't have the capacity to do that. So that was something that was really cool. So like looking at how like they had to be innovative for the sake of it, like NBA Jam, like I'm sure part of Tremel and what his team were thinking about was like, you know, maybe we can have like more players on the screen. But if you have more players on the screen, there's more lag um, or you'll ha it'll require more work in terms of building those out. And all those heads in NBA Jam were all handmade. And, you know, all those arenas, somebody had to animate those arenas and it took all this work from this one team. They didn't know how it was going to turn out. Um, you know, there's something really exciting about that, which is like, how are we going to take this new concept and adapt it to a medium that already exists? Whereas now, if you know, if you go online and you can pretty much think of any kind of concept of a game, like most of them have been like, there's probably a really good game of that sport or of that variety out there. Whereas like in the 90s, it's still so much to come. Like, you know, by the end of the decade, you got, you know, Tony Hawk. Um, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater being this big skateboarding game, whereas at the beginning of the 90s, that wasn't a thing at all. So, um, yeah, I mean, just the, the innovation of that. I think that's partly nostalgia of like, oh, man, it's so cool to watch this. It happened so good. But I also think it was the reality. Like, they didn't have access to all these tools and all this information. Um, so it was a definitely a different era in that way. And that's something I, I really I really do miss. I miss a lot. Do you think that um, in time will feel the same way or people will feel similarly like about this particular era of gaming, you know, PS five just did 
you know, big announcement for their next couple games that they're going to be show uh, they're, they're going to be releasing, you know, the Spider-Man, the Wolverine, stuff like that. God of War. Do you think that, you know, that nostalgia is kind of inherent with the times that, you know, in 20, 30 years would look back on 2021 and be like, wow, that was that was really cool. Or do you think that it maybe will change the way that we feel about media? Yeah, I think it definitely depends on your age group and what perspective you're looking at. Like if you're a kid right now, you'll absolutely feel nostalgia. 20 years from now, when you go back and look at the PS5, you're like, wow, I remember when, you know, they announced this game. Or I remember when, you know, the PS5 came out. Um, but in terms of people that are like, <laughs> like a little bit, like I, it feels weird to say older, but you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm 35, like around my age, I definitely have nostalgia. I, w- I would have nostalgia for something like that 20 years from now if the game was good enough or if the project was good enough or it left an impression on me. But, you know, I don't feel, I, I certainly don't look at like 10 years ago or even 20 years ago the same way as like, I did back in the day because of like, you know, because of the technology leaps and things like that. And um, it also depends on how, how tuned in you are. So, you know, for example, like I have like a little bit of nostalgia for 20, like for 2010, 2011, 10 years ago. So it feels weird to be nostalgic over such a short time ago, but you know, I've got a little bit of nostalgia and then I've got more nostalgia of like the early two thousands for sure. Um, But then, you know, I think that it's going to, it always, it'll show, you know, show with time, like how much, um, I interact with those games or how much I, I know about them, but you know, it's, there's something different about, you know, your first, like what they say is like, you know, your first kiss is always different. There's something different about that, about there's just something different about the nineties and going right. back to like, you know, when you were a kid and seeing it all unfold and being really tuned in. Um, so I'm definitely not as tuned in, but there'll be nostalgia, but I think it'll be more nostalgia for specific games or specific projects versus the scene overall. Um, you know, especially in my case, like, I feel like, I didn't really, wasn't really tuned into like Xbox 360 and PS3, PS4, you know, like Xbox One, like all this, like, you know, even like Wii and whatnot didn't hit the same way for me as like Super Nintendo versus Sega Genesis versus PlayStation versus Saturn versus N64. So it's definitely a timing thing over there too. Definitely. I feel the same way, you know, over, you know, several years of working on the NBA Jam book, you know, 60 plus interviews later you know, several interviews and, you know, you know, talking about the book and, and promoting the book, what has been the most rewarding part about the journey, which is the NBA Jam book? What has been the most fulfilling part or the most enlightening discovery, you know, pursuing that project or completing yeah. that project? That's really cool, man. There's so much that goes into that. Um, so there's, there's a lot of things that were, that were most satisfying about it. First off, just writing a book and finishing it and putting it out in the first place was satisfying in a way of like few things are ever satisfying because just like the sensation of being done when I first put out the book was just like oh my god thank god like I thought that I would never be over with it like I started in 2015 and I was yeah. like it's gonna take me a year two years um and then it's oh, gonna take me three years and in the end it took me four years um now granted I was working a full-time job and I had a whole bunch of other stuff going on around that time too but it's like you know it starts off as one thing and it goes into another and just it being finished alone was like a huge, huge sensation, like huge, like, like rush of relief and like, wow, I don't even know what to do with my life. Like, uh, this is over. Um, but in terms of the reception of the book itself, yeah, it's been amazing seeing like how much people really cared about that era and, you know, hearing people share their stories with me um, or, you know, reading them talk about how much they loved NBA Jam is very cool and about how much like the 90s arcade scene meant to them. Because, you know, when I was starting to work on the book, I was like, I know people love NBA Jam and I love NBA Jam a ton too. And I love Midway and I love the arcade scene uh, of the nineties. So I really have to go above and beyond. 
So like when I got like 10 or 20 interviews, I was like, this is pretty good, but I'm going to keep going. And when I got 30 interviews, I was like, this is cool. I'm going to keep going. When I got to 40 interviews, I was like, I got to be wrapping it up soon. But man, there's still so much out there. I'm still so curious. And I just know that more interviews will make it better. So then I got to 50 interviews and I was like, wow, this is crazy. I'm not going to have room for all this stuff, but I got to keep going. And then I finally capped off at 68 interviews, which was just wild for this one little book. But I knew that like the reception would be there if the quality was there. And if I found new material that people weren't expecting to read or something they had no idea existed. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, seeing the reaction to that and how people dug it and they could see the whole rise and fall of Midway and even the 90s arcade scene with the book, um, you know, they could see that throughout the book. And like they recognized that like that really meant a lot to me um, and hearing just from people all across the board. And then um, and then, yeah, what was really cool was like, you know, soon after the book came out, I started getting uh, courted about a documentary project. Um, so back in January, we announced that uh, actually Variety magazine announced it, that there's going to be an NBA Jam documentary, something based on the book. Um, awesome. So that's an early development. And that's awesome, too. Yeah. It's like a whole movie from a nonfiction book for my first one was just amazing. And it feels like, wow. That was, makes it really worth it in retrospect. Now, of course, at the yeah. time, I have no idea what's going to happen. But, you know, just seeing like that, that reception is amazing. Um, and then, yeah, just having like a final documented product of all this stuff is, is really cool. You know, as a fan, like I wish there was more stuff out there from the 90s. Like we've got all these games we love and we still get nostalgic about. We'll still talk about all the time. We'll still post about. But we don't know the stories of the people who made them. Like I couldn't tell you who like did all the, you know, the sound for, you know, for Tekken 3 or any of the Tekken series. Like, I don't know the, the, develop, the music designer's name offhand. Um, and I'm sure, of course, that information's out there, but like, I don't know if there's a story attached to it or whatnot, too. And the same right. thing goes for so many of these other games out there of like, you know, like there's a gazillion classic games. We don't know how they were made. Who were the people involved? What were the circumstances? Was it comfortable? Was it uncomfortable? Did they have a lot of a budget? They have no budget. You know, what was going on before that? What was going on after that? Did they know it was a hit? Did they not know it was a hit? Like that kind of stuff really isn't documented. And it's really hard to find really dense stories about 90s video games. It's like there's only a handful of them out there. You know, there's some stuff online, but not a ton of stuff. And I was like, I want to be like, you know, the first book to really talk about 90s arcade culture or do something documented where it's like you come back to it 20 years from now, everything in there is still accurate. And all those quotes in there, like those are real quotes that are attributed to real people. So that was a big thing for me as, as like a fan uh, and as a reader, like I wanted it to be something where it's like you come back to it. And it's like there's a document of this era and you get to know who Mark Tremell and all these people are because otherwise they'll just get lost to time. Yeah. And we appreciate the work that you've done. And it's been inspiring for us, too, because uh, I mean, like, you know, I haven't written a book in this field yet, but it's definitely like, you know, it's definitely going to happen eventually. And so I always yeah. kind of look towards, you know, people who have had a lot of success with it and how you've approached the project. And I think you've done it really well and people have responded really positively to it. And so, man, just congrats and congrats on the variety, uh, you know, film project that they're going to start or kicking. Yeah. Out. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. It's super cool. Yeah. So it's still really early on and it's not going to be like a, like, it's not like a one-to-one -one documentary where it's like, okay, now, like, you know, the movie is going to follow the same path as the book or anything like that. You can't really do, do that with a nonfiction uh, doc in the first place, but it's going to have like some of the same, like it'll have the same arc and it'll have still have me behind it uh, to some degree. So, yeah, it's really cool. And like, I mean, like it's it just really speaks to just how much people really love NBA Jam.
I mean, I was thinking there's actually a period where like I was like maybe let's say 2017, I was like way overthinking NBA Jam because I was like, if I'm writing this book and you know, I get one shot at it, uh, unlike a game with DLC or any kind of updates, I can't add to it. When the book is out there, the book is out there. That's it. I have to think of every aspect I can. So I was even trying to find at one point if there's any kind of NBA Jam haters out there. So I was right. like doing like Googling for like anti-NBA Jam terms of like where are people really hating on NBA Jam? Where do people really dislike NBA Jam? Because I want to talk to them or hear their perspective. Because if there's anything out there, I can put it in the book. But what's crazy is I could find almost nothing. Like I just found a few <laughs> people complaining, complaining about the cheating AI, which is always, you know, that's always been a thing in NBA Jam is that the AI is garbage. Not garbage, yeah. but it's definitely bogus at times with some of the stuff that yeah. it does. Yeah. It's just, you know, totally messes around with you. Um, but that really spoke to, to, you know, how powerful NBA Jam was back then. I was just doing the research too. It's like, I had such a tough time finding, you know, anti-NBA Jam stuff. Whereas like, you know, as much as I love Mortal Kombat, you'll find anti-Mortal Kombat stuff out there if you look. Like people are like, oh, Street Fighter's better than Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat sucks. Or this game is too violent. Or it fell off over here. Or this happened or that happened. As much as I love Mortal Kombat. But you don't find that about NBA Jam. So I knew there was going to be like a readership base. And I knew people would be interested if I could deliver. Like, you know, the, I, for me, the big thing was like the novelty of like when you see an NBA Jam book, like if you're just a random person who has no idea about this project is this or anything like that, you're like, what is that? That's just a weird concept. Like what, why, how is there even an NBA Jam book? Is there even a story there? Like why would somebody right. write that? And I want right. somebody to be like, that is such a weird thing. And like, that's so strange. Like what, what's the point? And then they look at it and like, oh, wow. You know, this game that I, I loved and it was such a simple back and forth two on two game actually has so much that goes into it from the you know the behind the scenes in terms of how it's developed to its cultural impact to what happened with the companies themselves that were involved and how their relationships fell apart like that's something that's really interesting to me and you know if anything like we've learned that like people really love like the stuff they love they also love learning about that too like you know the last dance like being so popular like that was so long ago but it was like just the hottest topic when it came out because everybody still loves the nineties bulls and wants to learn about them. Everybody still loves Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman and wants to hear about their dynamic, even though they haven't been playing for decades. So, you know, there still is always going to be that appetite for something that people genuinely really love. Like if it's just something that's like a flash in the pan, where it's like, you know, it was just there for five minutes and gone, it won't be the same thing. But if it's something where people are still talking about all these years later, there's still going to be some kind of market for it. Um, and there's some kind of audience. It's just a matter of figuring out, what that audience is and how you get to them. And if there's really a story over there and when you get to that perfect Venn diagram where you've got all of them, like it's a, something that you like and it's something that people like and it's something you can find information about something that hasn't been beaten to death. Like when you can find that, that's a beautiful thing. And that's really what NBA jam was for me. Like I knew it was going to be something special because I had all those, you know, I checked all the boxes. Like I was a fan too. And I knew there were fans out there as well. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really incredible. And I mean, you definitely hit a nerve with, uh, you know, the gaming community and, and, you know, the nostalgic communities like it's and it's a big it's a landmark in technology and entertainment technology. You know, I was really interested in, in the idea that, you know, the gaming industry is super profitable and it's growing every year exponentially more people are gaming more than ever mobile gaming has just exploded the the top off this whole thing and it's like it's the history of it is still so you know 
undertapped. It's still not told. Right. And that's kind of what you're doing with NBA jam. The book is like trying to tell these stories, but like it keeps growing and it keeps getting bigger, but like the stories and like who designed the music for this or what company like, you know, worked on this and who, who did this lettering for the game or who did the ad promo, like all the history is kind of just being lost. And of course there's people like you and, and hopefully, you know, we do a good job as well as trying to tell those stories, but I wish there was more of us, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or Absolutely. I wish we could like yeah. start a discord or something and yeah. like start getting these stories out faster because we can't get them out as fast as enough as they're producing games. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, that's no. Crazy. And I mean, I think that's one of those things too, that speaks to how much, you know, people take, take video games much more seriously. And it's clearly so much more of a bigger business than it used to be. Now, granted, it was probably massive business in the nineties. I have no doubt about it, that it was a huge billion dollar business, but the cultural perception wasn't, where it was then as it is now where like you know like just a random example like i saw that uh you know there's all these like random characters in fortnite like marvel superheroes or whatever okay cool but then i saw ariana grande's in fortnite i'm like what like that just speaks to like like can you imagine like i don't know whitney houston in a game back in the day or like yeah like madonna showing up or like janet jackson showing up or something like that Like, that's just so crazy. But, like, that's just how popular Fortnite is, is that they they managed to get Ariana Grande, who is from a totally different sphere in some ways. But, yeah, you know, I think that, like, video games are so new um, overall as a medium. Like, and there's still, like, so many people that don't really get it. And I think, like, you know, as time goes on, people will document it more. Like, you know, there's classes when I was at at college, there's, like, their classes, the history of filmmaking. But filmmaking goes back to, like, the 30s. And I was in, you know, taking these classes in, like, 2004 2005 or something so you're talking about 70 years over there whereas video games like realistically you'll go back to maybe the 70s or so um and then like yeah from like the 70s on it's really not like it's been such a short period of time and it's changed so dramatically so i'd so my guess is that like 20 years from now like a book like nba jam but based of like you know the games from now or whatever like they'll be like those will be much more prevalent like you'll see much more nonfiction writing about that and much more like people understand that there's people want to hear these stories, but you know, owing to like a bunch of different reasons, like how secretive uh, the video game industry was in the '90s in terms of like the developers being out there, in terms of like not knowing who to contact or what's out there. Like, you know, one of my all-time favorite games is Punch Out. I can tell you a single person who works on Punch Out. Like, I don't like I don't know anybody. I I I mean, I'm, I'm sure the credits are out there somewhere, but I've never seen their story out there. And stuff yeah. like that. Like that, that would be an incredible story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. That's there's an incredible some, game. You know that yeah. game has some story to it. Absolutely. And I mean, like, and there's so many games out there where it's just like, man, I would love to be there to be like, I want to hear like, boy, you know, um, let's say X-Men versus Street Fighter. Like, who, where was the team at Capcom oh. meeting Marvel for the first oh. time when they were like, we're going to do this. Let's do X-Men versus Street Fighter. Don't and even like, get me started. Yeah, exactly. Don't like, what, what were the conversations like? And did they think like it was going to be a, like a big hit? Did they think it was going to lead to all the crossovers that happened? Or did right. they think it was going to be a one-off? Or, you know, stuff right. like that. Right. Like, there's all these perspectives that we'll, we don't know because either the person's out there hasn't told their story um, or there's a language barrier. Like, you know, in the case of X-Men versus Street Fighter, I wouldn't know where to start. Um, or, you know, they're out there and they just had nobody's asked them. Like, you know, there's there's 90s uh, game developers out there, you know, from the American side who are out there and publishers, you know, who are still working in the industry in some ways, who have some amazing stories, I'm sure. You just don't know who they are. Like, you don't know where to find them. You don't know where to look. Um, but when you start digging, then you learn there's all this crazy stuff. Like, 
in writing NBA Jam, I learned about the dynamic between Midway and Acclaim. Whereas, like, as a kid, Acclaim is just a name on a box. And, you know, they, they publish the home games. Midway is just a name on an arcade cabinet. They make the arcade versions. Like, I didn't know anything about the, the behind-the-scenes uh, drama or any kind of, you know, any kind of interactions they had or the people that were involved. And then years later, I find somebody on LinkedIn who works at Acclaim who tells me a great story, policing me to somebody else and so forth. So right. those stories are out there. They're all just hidden, you know. And, you know, in time, people will find them more. But I imagine the stories of, like, right now, like, you know, the story of, like, let's say, um, what's, a, what's a good example somewhere right now? Going back to Fortnite, I imagine there should be, like, a crazy good Fortnite book, like, 20 years from now. I mean, you could write a Fortnite book now, but it won't be the same thing as writing a Fortnite book 20 years from now, whereas we see, like, the whole full Fortnite arc from beginning to end and then what happens right. now. Right. Um, yeah. It's still really popular. Let it, you know, kind of you know fade out a little bit and then the book come out and then it will be huge you know absolutely yeah. yeah and i mean that was another reason i knew i had to write about nba jam which was because like it was on top of the world at one time like my favorite stat is that you know in 993 jurassic park made 373 million in theaters and that was like the biggest movie like that was inescapable that was everywhere and then meanwhile nba jam made three times as much money as jurassic park in the arcade quarter by quarter or token by token which is just crazy to me yeah that's and insane that's like that's crazy like crazy crazy yeah. yeah that's crazy and it sounds unbelievable until you realize and you go back and you're like oh nba jam i know nba jam like um you know i have a bunch of nba jam shirts and i'll go out there and i'll wear it someplace and like the guy at like the you know the guy at the restaurant will be like, oh nba jam i recognize that i'll get stopped someplace but people of all kinds of different ages um and even you know different demographics like i wouldn't might not have expected like boy like would women know NBA Jam the same way but what some but women do NBA, do recognize NBA Jam too like that just goes to show this cultural prevalence so like mm -hmm. in time like you'll realize like what happened with it and um yeah in NBA Jam's case is like how is it so big and it was everywhere and then like it just totally fell off and we haven't seen any kind of NBA Jam now for like over 10 years and even then that would have come from EA like the midway era is totally gone so like how does it happen where like you're the biggest thing in the world and then you just completely fall off or you just you know things collapse like that was always really interesting to me so you know i would love to to see stuff like that i'm trying to think now like the equivalent would probably be cyberpunk because cyberpunk was going to be so huge it was this and that and of course the game was just this huge disaster on multiple levels even for its quality um but like boy i would love to read like the cyberpunk book like even yeah, 10 years yeah. from now, I'd take, I'd absolutely read that cover to cover, and I don't even play Cyberpunk because there's some amazing stories over there. But, yeah, yeah, and you know, that's a lot to think about, man. It got me thinking about the um, NBA Jam, the phrase Jam. Is this the first game that, you know, associated NBA with Jam? Like, where did the name come from? You would know probably better than anybody, yeah. like the actual name NBA Jam, right? Like, how did that come about? Because obviously it, it sparked Space Jam, I, I'm assuming in some way, right? Like, and you, and the reason why I was bringing this up is because you were talking about like people from all ages see that shirt and they like, I wasn't playing NBA Jam a lot as a kid, but I know NBA Jam. That's right. How big you'll be it familiar is. with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll be familiar with it. And, and it got me thinking like, what is it about NBA Jam like where did that come from and like was that the first place to do it because if, if it is then three years later 
when Space Jam came out, it obviously was like paying homage to NBA Jam in 93. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So NBA Jam came actually from the NBA. Um, they had an event that they started for their All-Star Weekends called NBA Jam Session, um, which was pretty cool where they had like, you know, that was like the original name for like the like the dunk contest and the so, like the fan events and the three point contest. I think that was all kind of part of NBA Jam Session. Like that was their branding in the early nineties. And this was still like a relatively new concept. Like they also had like a whole stay in school program with all this imagery associated with it as well. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, but yeah, so when Midway was working on this basketball game and they were trying to figure out like, okay, it's gonna be an NBA game, but what, what's the name gonna be? NBA uh, had this NBA jam session branding that we're really into. And this was a hot thing at the time. And they really want, you know, this is like, okay, like NBA jam session. But then um, somebody over at Midway, I forget who, um, but somebody was like, honestly, like NBA Jam Sessions, like a, it's like a really long name for a marquee. Like, and if we can do something else, let's do it. So like, let's just shorten it to NBA Jam. And I feel like, you know, NBA Jam, like just totally just beats the socks off of NBA Jam Session in terms of like the title, like it's just so emphatic NBA Jam, just a few syllables, right. boom. Um, and I, that was one of the reasons it was so big. Um, but yeah, like it was just, it, it, the game has a perfect name for it too. Um, but yeah, like the machine itself still has some NBA Jam Session branding on it. So you could go on there and you could see like there's a little um, like, you know, I think it's by the controls um, or maybe it's like on the side of the cabinet somewhere, I'm forgetting offhand, where you'll see some NBA Jam Session branding. Um, that was like a holdover from that. But originally it was NBA Jam Session until somebody was like, that's a really long name for this arcade marquee. Let's make it NBA Jam. And the NBA, the NBA was OK with that. And then lo and behold, NBA Jam became a much, much, much bigger brand than NBA Jam Session ever was. Um, so, I mean, it just speaks to like how popular the NBA was at the time and like that, you know, NBA Jam took off like it did. Um, but yeah, Jam was like a word that was like really in play in a lot of places in the 90s. Like there was Charles Barkley Shut Up and Jam. Um, there was, of course, Space Jam. I'm sure there's some other jams I'm forgetting, but as far as I know, yeah, NBA Jam was like the big, like, you know, like the video game is what prompted that phrase NBA Jam and what made it so big. And I think that, you know, that made all the difference. Like having a great title like that just takes it to the next level. Like Mortal Kombat's a cool game, but the name Mortal Kombat alone makes you go, oh, Mortal Kombat, that sounds cool. And NBA Jam had that going for it too. Right. Yeah, definitely. And then uh, Michael Jackson had jam with uh, absolutely and, uh, michael jordan yeah. too. did you know that um at one point uh midway they, they were hoping to get jam by uh, michael jackson which is crazy like there's some old development notes out there that i got access to where like i'm not sure if it was Tr mark Tramell, uh the lead designer or somebody else on the team saying it but they were like you know maybe we should try to get get jam by michael jackson the game is like a the halftime song or something like that which would have been crazy in terms of his licensing fee, but it would have been amazing to have that. So like yeah. to have like Michael Jackson in, in NBA jam would have been like just wild. Um, but yeah, they had like all these different little ideas. Like, you know, this was right when um, the Malcolm X movie came out with Spike Lee uh, or the, okay. the Spike Lee directed my, uh, Malcolm X movie came out and Midway was thinking like, maybe we can have like a billboard for like the latest movies. We can have like a Malcolm X billboard in the background. Um, and all these little ideas, like they were really trying to think ahead and like trying to think of like, what can we do with this to make it seem more lifelike and bigger? Um, but yeah, um, that and Michael Jackson's jam were one of those things that like Midway would have preferred to have had an NBA jam just didn't happen. 
Wow. Thank you for that piece of history. And uh, yeah. when you were talking about um, Ariana Grande, the only person I could think of was Michael Jackson. You know, he had his games for Sega, Moonwalker. That's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. And that was a yeah. huge deal when he had that. And then he showed up in um, he showed up in a couple of midway games, I think. He showed up in – no, 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 not a couple of midway games. One midway game and one Sega game by the late 90s. So he was in Space Channel 5 Part 2, I think, or Space Channel 5 1, one of them. And he was in Ready to Rumble Boxing round two, which was crazy to see him in there. Um, but yeah, in terms of like having that officially licensed game, like, of course, you know, Moonwalker was so huge and Michael Jackson's license carried that. But it was such a like, it was mind blowing seeing Michael Jackson in a game like that. Like, it would have been crazier to see like, you know, a woman, like a, like a female pop singer over there. Like, you know, wow, oh, yeah. what would have been like to see like, you know, I don't know, like the Janet Jackson game or like a share game or something like that in the 90s. That like, so wow, yeah. that had been wild. Um, but I mean, yeah, like, but nowadays, though, if you're like, as weird as it sounds like, oh, you know, there's Lady Gaga in a game or Katy Perry in a game. You wouldn't just be like, oh, my God, that's completely impossible. There's no way that happened because of right, how right. video games have changed and how, you know, the cultural perception of them is totally different. And I think the main reason why Michael Jackson was that exception is because he really liked video games. Like He loved Sonic. He loved, you know, there's pictures of him playing Tekken. Like he was yeah. a big gaming per- fan. Like and so. I think uh, where nowadays those machines kind of operate on their own because, you know, it's a bigger, it's a different game now. It's a bigger industry now. Whereas like Michael Jackson actually saw, he actually was like calling Sega, like, I want to do a game. Like it was like that type of, yeah, it was crazy. So, but that's really interesting that you bring up the NBA Jam session, obviously adds a lot of context to the NBA Jam, you know, title and also brings us back to a really important, awesome moment in, you know, basketball history and like just the design of the nineties, like it's just an incredible era, man. Like just, wow. You know what I mean? Like that, that to me is a modern mythology, you know, like you were talking about the, you know, bulls, like 96, 97, like that's like, that's mythology, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, that's another one of the reasons the NBA jam succeeded. It had everything going for it. Like, aside from being, like, like, a good game to play and, you know, just having, like, the NBA license attached to it, which is huge, you had all these amazing players. Like, you know, I went through and, like, I remember when I was writing the book, I was, like, I went through the original NBA Jam roster and there's, like, 16 or 18 Hall of Famers, something like that, which is crazy. Right. They're all in this one game. And, you know, you could see their faces in the game. You could actually see their faces in the game itself, which nowadays, if you're, like, see a face in the game, it's, like, what's the big deal? But back, like, then, then it's, like, oh, my seven. God. What? Yeah. It actually looks like Patrick Ewing. Oh, my God. That's actually, you know, Larry Johnson or whoever. Um, it's such a big deal at the time. So, yeah, there were all these different, like, little convergences that, you know, you had that. You had the fact that, that Midway uh, was based in Chicago. So they were, like, right in the middle of Bulls fever themselves. So they were hyped up, you know, as the Bulls were winning championships, Midway was making NBA Jam. And, like, that's just so cool, too. Plus, like, they, you know, they were right working alongside with the Mortal Kombat team. So, like, in one hallway, like, you'd have the team work on NBA Jam. And then just down a few doors, you'd have Ed Boone and John Tobias and their team work on Mortal Kombat 1 and Mortal Kombat 2, depending on the time frame, which is so cool. Thinking, like, you know, these huge titans are, like, working side by side in this little office. And, you know, that like, Mortal Kombat isn't what Mortal Kombat is now, where it's like this huge phenomenon, you've got a movie and this, that, and whatever. It's just like this little game these guys are working on, it's going to end up being this legendary game. But yeah, tons of myth making going on. Like the timing of that, the fact that it debuted in Chicago, like, 
I can't imagine what it would have been like to go to an arcade in Chicago in late 1992 and see NBA Jam on test before anybody else, before any of the video game magazines have gotten to it, before it's available anyplace else. And, you you know, you're playing this amazing new basketball game in Chicago proper where it was on test was just so cool. So yeah, NBA Jam had all that going for it. It had like the secret characters that came along later. It had the cool graphics. It had the on fire. Of course, Tim Kitzrow's commentary, like all those different things. And like you take up all those different elements and that's what makes it this huge, this huge thing that people remember and love so much. You know, it's like it isn't just one thing, you know, it's like with the story of Nintendo, like people love like talking about how great Mario was and whatnot, too. And obviously it is. But the fact that Mario came after the video game crash of the of 83, where it's like maybe video games aren't going to be this next big thing. Maybe video games were just a passing fad. And then Super Mario Brothers on the Nintendo comes and pushes it right back up. Like, that changed the context of the time, too. Like, that's a big part of Mario's story as well. So, like, right, you know, all right. those kinds of things that adds to, like, that myth-making, you know, of, like, where it was at the time and who was working on it and how it was made. Um, and it was so cool to be able to document that with NBA Jam and to go back and see, like, okay, I can try to talk to whoever it was that was working on the game at this time. or People were playing it as it came out. So, I mean, those kinds of games, that's kind of stuff you can't really write. Like, that's not a thing you can market. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, you can't right. plan that, like, it's all going to go so perfectly. Um, so, you know, but it just well, happens like well, that. Yeah, the, the crazy thing is, man, and, and I'm, I'm glad we were able to get on this 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 call because when I saw the book and then I saw kind of the work that you're doing and stuff that you share online, I was like, this guy gets it. Like, he, he gets yeah. that this game was not only a great game and has a great history, but it was, it's a period piece for the early 90s like if you want to know about early 90s you just need to look at the nba jam book right like because even if you didn't play the game you're going to learn a lot about that period through the book about the game right like in about that period and, and because like just everything about it top to bottom the the um the design the gameplay the era the players the everything about it screams 1993 and it screams that era of mythology like and the name like nba jam like it is a jam a mashup of all these different intersections of pop culture right and the backdrop is the you know nba court and it's just like it's it's just such an incredible piece to me it's like an exemplary like arcadism piece you know it's the it is the mashup game and it's the mashup game that like spearheaded like I said, NBA street, NBA ballers, all the street games, all the street sports games, like all the, you know, insane pop culture crossovers, you know, Michael Jackson eventually being in a boxing game, like all of that, yeah. like, and it was all done by Midway. Like, I mean, a lot of that was, was kind of like that, 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 uh, you know, that heavy lifting in the States was done right there in Chicago. I mean, what could be a better place? You know what I mean? Chicago is the place for something like that to happen. Like, it just makes sense. And so it's just like an incredible, insane, amazing story of just worlds colliding, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, thinking like, you know, on top of Chicago being the place for basketball in the early 90s with the Bulls, that's also where Midway's based out of. And then there's a huge arcade scene. So like you're debuting an arcade game in a place that's a huge arcade hub. So, yeah, I mean, that kind of stuff, those stories you can't really like you just can't come up with that in terms of like, OK, my marketing plan is going to be this or I'm going to do this or do that. Like some of the stuff just has to happen. Either it happens or it doesn't. Um, and, yeah, it really speaks to how like, you know, how much of an indelible impression NBA Jam left on people. I mean, people like if you just do that format, if you just like do a little sketch on a page of like the select screen 
you don't even have to draw the faces or anything. You just draw the layout and you show it to somebody and you're like, what game is this from? They'll be like NBA Jam, of course. Like people can tell that just immediately. And I mean, right. that's why there's still so much interest. Like, you know, that's why there's still NBA Jam shirts being produced. And that's why there's going to be this, you know, NBA Jam documentary or whatever. And that's why, you know, Boss Fight Books said yes to the NBA Jam book in the first place is because like, you know, there's, there's so much love out there and there's still so much interest. And what's cool about NBA Jam too is that like, you know, it was so mysterious. Like it was always, you know, we know a lot about it, but it's still so mysterious to the point that there's still like at least one mystery that hasn't totally been solved yet, uh, which is that Michael Jordan was actually an NBA Jam himself. Like he had a special version made where he had Midway make a special version where he was in the game along with Gary Payton and Ken Griffey Jr., which is this really weird like Easter egg artifact thing that was only made for a handful of these celebrities, but has never been seen out there. Like, but it's still out there. Like, you know, Gary Payton's talked about it before. Like he has still has a couple of NBA jam machines in his house, or at least one of them that has the special version of NBA jam in there. But like, you know, if that version drops someday or somebody is like, you know, we finally have access to the Michael Jordan NBA jam and like the real version, not a like, hack or anything like that. The real thing. Yeah, people would go bananas, and that yeah. news would just go viral just for being like, "Oh my God, NBA Jam mystery solved!" All these years later, so there's still that element of NBA Jam too that like provokes people's imaginations. That like maybe we don't know everything. Maybe there is something cool in there. Because if anybody would hide something in their game like that, it would be Midway. That's deep. That's heavy. And plus, there's even more like, you know, not just this game and not just, you know, let's just look at Midway, like not even looking at the other companies. There's probably so many hidden Easter eggs and secrets and stuff like people are still finding out stuff about, you know, Super Mario Bros. You know what I mean? Like they're still learning stuff like I, I remember seeing some stuff the past five years, 10 years ago, like new stuff discovered in, in a game that's been out, you know, 20 plus years, you know what I mean? So absolutely. Yeah. There's a, there's a dude out there who's, yeah. And there's, there's like, there, I was reading a profile of uh, somebody who's like a, I think he's a professional super Mario brothers speedrunner, And that's such a weird concept. If you go back to the nineties and you're like, Hey, in 20 years from now, or, you know, 25 years from now, whatever, there'll be like a guy whose job it is like, that's literally what he does for money is he plays Super Mario Brothers really fast and people watch and he makes money off of it or people give him money. Like if you go back and say that to somebody in the 90s, you're like, what are you talking about? Like that's right. such a weird concept. Right. But these right. games are like these cultural artifacts that people love so much that when you go back to them, there's not just a sense of nostalgia, but there's also the sense of interest as to like, I want to learn more about the game. Like there, maybe there is some aspect of the game I don't know. And what's cool about it is that you know, we're still finding out new stuff all the time about these old games. And, you know, that, that keeps them alive in a really big way. Um, and, you know, NBA Jams has that in spades. You know, people have that with Street Fighter 2. Um, God, there was one specific move that was in the news. Like, people, there was, like, some sort of bounty. Um, like, was it, like, a Zangief, like, block or something? Or a Zangief throw? There was something that was in the news, like, or, like, that was, like, circulating on Twitter, like, a few months ago. Like, you know, I'll give a bounty to a player who can pull off this one move exactly right. And it's like you're given a bounty to a player for pulling off a move in a game that's from, like, back when Bill Clinton was president. Like, this is a long time ago. So, um, but it's it's so cool, though. Like, you know, that love there, that's passion. That passion is true. And that's something that I don't think is going to go away with time. Like, in fact, it's only going to increase with time, you know, as as we get older, as time goes on, and as you realize how good some of these games were and the kind of cultural impact they left. Um, and as people take video games more seriously, it'll definitely change. And it'll definitely grow for the better in time. 
Wow, that's amazing. Uh, where can our listeners uh, get in touch with you and stay in touch with what you're working on? Yeah, yeah. So I'm over on a couple of places. Uh, I'm on an Instagram, which I unfortunately do not take very good care of. So it just kind of sits there and gets like a post like once every few months. <laughs> I keep telling myself I'm going to go back to it. Uh, but I'm on Instagram at NBA Jam Book. Um, and then otherwise, I spend most of my time over on Twitter at NBA Jam Book over there. Um, post about all kinds of different games and like trying to find something cool to share like every day. So like I have like a huge, I have like 75 or 80 pages of posts I haven't made. Um, probably over that. I post probably like 120, 150 pages of like stuff that is there for the Twitter that I haven't put out. Um, so keeping that feed coming. Um, otherwise, yeah, the book's out on uh, bossfightbooks.com or you can look it up on Amazon. Just look up NBA Jam book. It's out there in both paperback and digital. Um, and if you're in the States, I also do signed copies. So if you're interested in an autographed copy, just hit me up via Twitter DM and I can get you, um, I can get you hooked up with one. Um, but yeah, if you just look up NBA Jam book, I'm out there. I'm pretty easy to find. 